Welcome to The Change, a podcast about perimenopause for people in their 30s and 40s. I'm your host, Caitlin O'Connor, naturopathic doctor with a practice in Denver, Colorado, supporting patients with their health and hormones throughout the many phases of life. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Welcome to part two of our conversation with OB-GYN Dr. Gretchen Fry, where we discuss in great detail hormone therapy options for mitigating perimenopausal symptoms. Please check out her website, GretchenFryMD.com, to gain more access to her expertise. So our second topic today is hormone replacement therapy, which is also now being known as menopausal hormone therapy, or MHT, in comparison to hormone replacement therapy, or HRT. What have you been calling it these days? I never stopped calling it HRT and <laughs> wasn't aware it had a new name, but I'm not surprised because these names evolve um, and that MHT works just fine as well. Yeah, I think the idea behind it is hormone replacement therapy sort of framed menopause as like a deficiency where menopause hormone therapy is framing it as a specific treatment for symptoms, but not necessarily implying that it's a time of deficiency or that your hormones need replacement. I like that. It's kind of the same in the transgender world. When you're, you're not doing hormone replacement therapy, you're just doing hormonal therapy, gender-affirming therapy. It's yeah. more positive. Perfect. Uh, so why don't we start by, tell me a little bit about menopausal hormone therapy. What options are available? Um, are they safe? Just kind of jump into the whole spiel for me. So what we're looking to do with menopausal hormone therapy is to bring back some of the hormones that have gone missing if someone is symptomatic. So right out of the starting gate, I want to say that I am not someone that thinks that everyone should take hormones just because. That would be a little more of an optimal aging camp kind of view that we should just replace all hormones to youthful levels indefinitely because that's you know, how we used to be. Plenty of women get through menopause just fine. The symptoms aren't too bad or they deal with them without hormones. And most of those women just never came into my clinic, but I knew they were out there. <laughs> <laughs> the ones who did come into my clinic and the ones we're probably talking to today, the reason to, to give uh, hormonal therapy is to alleviate symptoms. That really should be the main reason. There are other benefits, uh, but it should be symptom-based. Uh, so the hormones that are going missing in menopause are estrogen, progesterone, and to some degree testosterone, and maybe to a tiny degree DHEA for some people. The principal one, of course, is the estrogen. That's our main female hormone in the sense that it gives us our female shape and it drives uh, menstrual periods and so on. And progesterone, the secondary one, is also important. But during our reproductive years, we only make that in the second half of our menstrual cycle after ovulation. So what's available? Uh, there are lots and lots of hormone uh, preparations available out there that are FDA approved. And then there's also compounding, which is custom making hormone preparations to a particular recipe. Uh, what I always tried to stress when prescribing hormones was to try to use bioidentical hormones. And that's a bit of a charged word that gets some doctors' hair to stand up on the back of their necks. And that's because bioidentical has often been confused with compounded. And there are a lot of authorities, physicians included, who don't endorse compounding. What bioidentical really means is giving hormones that are chemically exactly the same as what your body was making. And the good news is there are lots of bioidentical estrogen preparations available that are safe and effective and well-tolerated. 
perhaps my favorite over the years has been estrogen patches or some of the estrogen gels. The patches are stuck onto the skin and they release estrogen slowly directly into the bloodstream, the same way that your body has always done it. Uh, Taking a pill can work too, and that is the only affordable option for many folks. That does give you more of a burst of estrogen right after the pill, and then of course it, it drops down as it gets absorbed. The oral route also passes through the liver, which has a few side effects that are pertinent to the risk of hormone replacement therapy. So our aim with hormone replacement is to give back the estrogen. If the uterus is still present, we need to give back progesterone as well so that we don't get estrogen-only stimulation of the uterine lining, which can lead to a risk of uterine lining cancer if it goes on long enough but we're giving the estrogen with or without the progesterone, and we're looking to alleviate whatever symptoms uh, someone's been having. And if we go back a little bit, I want to make a clarification, because I think a lot of times when people think about menopause hormonal therapy, they're thinking back to the hormone replacement therapy that came into popularity and then out of popularity as there were concerns with safety. And that was specifically an oral dose of hormones that were both a synthetic estrogen and a synthetic progestin, which is a um, synthetic form of progesterone, so different from the progesterone your body makes. Can you talk a little bit about that form of hormone replacement therapy and how that's different from what is considered now bioidentical or body-identical forms of hormone replacement therapy? Yes, I'm happy to do that. So most of the literature out there on risks of hormone replacement therapy or menopausal hormone therapy pertains to this one preparation, and that was brand name Premarin, which is a contraction of the words pregnant mare's urine, uh, because that is how it's derived. They impregnate mares and then collect their urine, and it's very rich in a mix of different estrogens. Uh, some of which are almost the same as human estradiol, and some less so, but none of them are the same as human estrogen. And in general, they're more potent than human estrogens. So most of the literature is on the Premarin pills. And the particular study that got everyone so worried, uh, the Women's Health Initiative study in 2002, had two study groups, women uh, who had had their uterus removed previously, they were post-hysterectomy, they took only the Premarin pill. And then the other half of the study group took a combined pill of Premarin with Provera, which is a synthetic progesterone analog, uh, and also more potent than natural progesterone. It has some slightly different effects. Uh, I'm glad you gave me the opening to talk about the risks, because when people think of risks of hormone therapy, they think of breast cancer, first of all. And I want to address the real numbers that came out of that study. So what happened in that study was in the 10,000-woman group that was taking the combined Prempro pill, after five years of use, they expected to see a certain number of breast cancers, which was just the background rate in that population of that age. The background rate was they expected to see 30 breast cancers in a 10,000-woman group of that age. What they saw after five years, that year five, they saw 38 breast cancers. So why did this cause everybody such consternation? This was only eight extra breast cancers in a 10,000-woman group. That's less than one in a 1,000. Well, somebody enterprising who wanted to make a bigger impact uh, with a headline, I suppose, figured out that this was a 27% increase in breast cancer rate. Well, now you have a great headline. Hormones cause 27% increase in breast cancer. 
I don't know about you, even with scientific training, what my brain immediately does with that is to say, oh my gosh, if I take hormones, I have a 27% risk of getting breast cancer. And it went into our brains that way. It went into the brains of many, many physicians and even OBGYNs that way. And it's been really hard to erase that mistaken impression. The other little piece of that that's really intriguing is, remember the study group that was only taking the Premarin pill because they had no uterus? They had zero increase in breast cancer. They, they came in at exactly the background rate. And that piece often gets lost, but it's really an important one because it's quite probable that the increased breast cancer rate really didn't even have anything to do with the estrogen, even though it wasn't an ideal form and route of estrogen. It probably had more to do with the synthetic progestin Provera because estrogen alone didn't increase those rates. Fast forward to bioidentical hormones, we don't have as much data. We have two trials that I know of. One is not really even a, a trial, but a retrospective study, and that was the E3N cohort study in France, and uh, that paper came out about 2008. This was examining the population data in the public health system, and what they noticed was women who were taking estrogen plus a synthetic progestin had a very small increase in their breast cancer rate, about 20% increase, similar to what we saw in the Women's Health Initiative. But the women who were taking estrogen with real progesterone, bioidentical progesterone, had no increase in their breast cancer rate. The other trial I'm aware of is the KEEPS trial, which was very short. They tried to address some of the problems with the WHI. They took a younger women's group and they gave them estrogen patch with or without actual progesterone. And that study was actually too short to show any differences in breast cancer rates. They didn't see any, but perhaps they would not have in that short of a study. So I want to dig into a little bit of that. The first is that statistics are really hard, <laughs> yeah. even for folks with a medical background, even for people who are reading the study itself versus an interpretation of the study. When you look at absolute risk, which is the difference of eight increased cases of breast cancer per 10,000. That sounds like oh, a little bit of an increase, but pretty reasonable. But when you do the analysis and say, oh, that's a 27% increase, like you were saying, your brain goes to one in four. Oh, my risk of getting breast cancer if I take hormone replacement therapy is one in four. That's a very different scenario. So I think that's a very important thing is that when we're looking at these studies and how people interpret them to try to figure out what is our absolute, what is sort of the true risks. But I think what's even more important that you stated is that it seems as if the risk associated with hormone replacement therapy was more having to do with oral progestin, which is a synthetic progesterone, versus the estrogen. And currently, it's pretty rare for people to be taking oral synthetic progestin for that reason. Yeah, to some degree. There are there are a number of hormone replacement preparations out there that are combined, kind of a birth control pill-like idea, because it's still very appealing to take a pill every day. It's very easy, and uh, it's more appealing to take one pill with two things in it than two different pills or two different preparations. And some of the combined formulas out there have uh, synthetic progestin in them. They, they may not have Provera, but they have other synthetic progestins. So it sounds like, to me, if we were thinking, what's the safest way to approach menopause hormone therapy. It would be to avoid the progestins if possible and to consider a more bioavailable or body-identical progesterone. 
that was certainly the way I approached it these many years was let's not second guess Mother Nature. Let's give back what's actually missing and let's do it in the safest way possible. So in the case of the estrogen, you can get a bioidentical estrogen in pill form, but if it's available and affordable to you, it's better to take it through the skin. When we take estrogen orally, any form of estrogen, um, and it goes through the stomach and um, passes through the liver, what we call first-pass metabolism before getting to the bloodstream, that kind of bolus or a bunch of estrogen all at once passing through the liver alters the function and the production of our clotting proteins a little bit. So it does slightly increase your risk of blood clotting. The increase is not a huge one. And uh, oral estrogen and its effect on stroke is considered to be a significant risk uh, arbitrarily at a, after about age 60, because that's when the additional blood clotting risk from oral estrogen exceeds 1 in 10,000. And so uh, certainly for women over 60, I would try very hard to transition them away from a pill form into a transdermal form. And you know, if I'm someone younger than 60, why not just start them out that way if it's possible? Okay, so let me summarize the risk component. It seems like two potential concerns. One is the breast cancer risk, which could potentially be mediated by not using progestins. And then the second would be clotting risk, specifically for stroke, which is more specifically when people are taking oral forms of estrogen therapy versus a patch which you put on the skin and the hormone is absorbed through the skin therefore doesn't have to interact with the liver and potentially increase those clotting factors. Such a great summary. Thank you. Much <laughs> less wordy than when I was just telling you. So those are our two big potential risks. What are the symptoms that you think are most effectively addressed using hormone or menopausal hormone therapy? Yeah, I think uh, the classic big symptoms that would drive people into my office would be miserable hot flashes, uh, and some people have them very mildly, but some have them publicly and very obviously with bright red faces and sweat running down, and that can be really disruptive. Uh, or they can be disruptive at nighttime, really interfering with sleep, and poor sleep would be another thing that would drive women in. So menopausal hormone therapy is great at getting rid of every vestige of hot flashes. It's great at improving sleep. And the things that go with improved sleep um, are things like better cognition. My thinking isn't as clear as it used to be. I'm not demented, but I just kind of have fog in my head. That tends to get better with improved sleep and maybe just with estrogen itself. Uh, there are often mood complaints, uh, and sometimes it goes along with the hot flash that could sort of trigger a panic attack, and people really feel like they're dying. They have no idea. There can also be worsening of existing anxiety or new or worsening depression. And sometimes it's a pretty mild depression. It might just be, I, I, I don't think I'm depressed. Like, I can get happy about stuff, but I just don't care as much anymore. So more of just like a flatness or a lack of motivation or sort of less energy and enjoyment of things versus right. like a real dark type. Right. They just don't have their mojo. Okay. Any other symptoms that seem to sort of respond well most of the time? A couple of other things that sometimes come up are inflammation. You know, we all collect some joint damage and chronic inflammation as we get older, and, and a big piece can be addressed with diet. But estrogen also has anti-inflammatory properties. And some of my patients who have been fine, when the estrogen is beginning to recede, they have more joint pain than they used to. So that can be a sort of surprise bonus when they go on the, the hormone replacement therapy. The, the joint pain piece is really interesting because the peak 
age for diagnosis of fibromyalgia is women in their 40s and early 50s. And so much of that sort of overlaps with the perimenopausal transition. And there's so there's such a limit of at least conventional pharmaceutical options for folks that aren't pain medication, psychiatric medications for women experiencing and people experiencing fibromyalgia, that I think it's important to keep that like aches and pains piece in mind as well. Because I wonder about how many folks are getting misdiagnosed with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and pain syndromes when at least a component of that is potentially hormonally mediated, which then opens up these other treatment options that I think potentially have a lower sort of risk ratio than some of the other medications that can be offered. A common thing I found over the years, which I didn't read in any textbooks, was that women might come to me after they had already presented to the ER because they had an episode of palpitations, which just means really rapid heart rate. And that is very estrogen sensitive. So sometimes women went the whole cardiac workup route and were told, good news, there's nothing wrong with you. And so the flip side of that is bad news, you must be nuts. You know, so yeah. actually the estrogen would uh, would address that and get rid of the palpitations, which, you know, might have a little anxiety or panic component. Sometimes it's really hard to tease out what comes first. Yeah, I think there's that overlap of like hot flashes, heart palpitations, heart fluttering, anxiety that can all come together, often even with like some dizziness or uh, chest tightness, mm -hmm. things like that. A lot of the times people go the cardiac route which is great. You want to get it checked out. But if that comes back normal, circle around back to the, to the hormone piece. Because again, what I see happen so much in medicine is if your lab tests are normal, if you've seen the specialist and they've ruled everything out, it's either A, sorry, it's just, you know, you feel terrible this phase of your life, suck it up and deal with it. Or you must be depressed. You must be anxious, which may be true. But it might also be related to the perimenopause. And again, we might also benefit from a hormonal treatment approach versus just jumping over that and going right into the psychiatric medications, which for people who are already experiencing some low libido, some dampening of mood, some weight gain, it might not always be the best fit. For some people, it's a great fit. But for other folks, Maybe they've already tried that. That's not working. I think we have to remember that this transition, yes, it's about the ovaries and the reproductive system, but it's also really about the brain and how the brain changes in response to those varying levels of estrogen. So there's almost no condition that kind of pops up in this age group where I'm like, have we thought about perimenopause? <laughs> like, I think it gets lost mysteriously and is like... It totally does. And especially for younger women, like if yeah. you're in your early 40s or even late 30s, you can have some of this going on. And most docs are just going to say, oh, you're way too young for menopause. Even if you ask them, you know, could this be perimenopause? There's a third uh, approach that can be taken that's potentially much more harmful. And that is, well, let's just do some more tests. Let's keep doing tests. Because mm -hmm. if you keep doing tests long enough, you're going to find some little thing that may then require an intervention that may then get you in a territory you never needed to go to if someone just said, let's try six weeks of hormones and see how you feel. Yeah, because if you're yeah. going to have a response, you're going to have a response pretty quickly. Yeah. So it's a pretty easy thing to trial before you kind of jump on to more complex treatment options or, you know, higher yeah. level imaging interventions, specialist visits. I think for women sort of 35 and up, but they're still having regular menstrual cycles. They're not having hot flashes. They're not having vaginal dryness. They're in this truly perimenopause period. It's not necessarily on their minds or their provider's minds. 
hey, this change is happening. It's starting. And it has these host of symptoms that could potentially respond to lifestyle intervention, hormone replacement therapy, botanical medicines. But if you're not looking for it, you're not going to see it. And if you don't see it, then you're not necessarily going to get a treatment plan that helps you improve it. So one of the purposes of this podcast is just to keep that in people's minds. If you are 35 and up, your hormones are likely changing. And if you're experiencing these health changes, don't forget that piece. And when you're remembering your hormones, don't expect your conventional Western doc to uh, try to find a solution for this problem when you're still in your late 30s or early 40s, because they're not going to have one. They're going to say, well, you're still having regular periods. What would we do? And, and whereas a naturopath would take a little different approach. And even if it's just let's supplement a little bit of progesterone in this time, um, you know, for focusing on hormones, but obviously lots of other supportive things that you could do. So when it comes to hormone replacement therapy, we've got three broad categories. One is oral replacement, which is typically oral estrogens and progesterones. The second is topical, which is often a topical estrogen patch, bioidentical estrogen patch. For folks who have a uterus, you want to make sure you're balancing that with an oral progesterone. For folks who don't have uteruses, you don't need the progesterone from a safety point of view, but I do think there might be a benefit for a sleep anxiety nervous system point of view. And then the third option, which we sort of covered earlier, is just topical hormones applied vaginally to deal with sort of more of those local symptoms. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, your, your first two categories would both fit into what we would call systemic menopausal hormone therapy. So doses that are sufficient to affect your whole body. And then the sort of the other group is that low dose vaginal preparations, usually yeah. estrogen only. Perfect. Yeah. I really wanted to make that clear that we yeah. have local applications, which is extremely low risk, applicable to almost everyone. And then we move into the systemic, which can either be done orally, which means through the mouth, you swallow a capsule, or through the skin. And for folks with uteruses, my opinion is that oral progesterone is the most effective at protecting the uterus from developing endometrial cancer versus a progesterone cream. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, certainly the only literature we have is uh, with oral progesterone. And progesterone given through the skin can be very effective for symptom relief, and it probably protects the uterine lining. It's just harder to know what dose you really need because the oral doses are so different than the transdermal doses to get the same symptom effect. Progesterone is most easily measured and controlled through the oral route, I would say. And I think that's a quick thing to note is that oftentimes when you are managing symptoms with hormone therapy, you're basing your levels and even the indication for the therapy based on people's symptoms versus blood levels, that especially during perimenopause, Hormone levels can be so different from cycle to cycle to cycle that your blood levels can be really different and often can kind of get you down a rabbit hole of trying to get some unknown sort of quote unquote perfect number. So the testing isn't as important than the symptom management piece and finding that level that's like safe, but people are feeling good on. Thank you so much for saying that because it's, it's very normal and logical to come into the doc and say, I don't feel good at all. I want to get my hormone levels checked. And then I always have to launch into my spiel, which is that I totally get what you're asking for. And I agree it's probably hormones. But if it's thyroid, your thyroid should always be in a super narrow, normal range. 
Same with maybe your blood sugar levels or your electrolytes or 10 other things that we could test. But with hormones, the estrogen range in a normal fertile cycle can go from 30 picograms during the menstrual period to 400 at mid-cycle. So what's a normal level? Yeah. And if you're in perimenopause, you could be 31 at 10 o'clock in the morning and 400 at 2 in the afternoon. So I really discourage measuring levels as a form of diagnosis. If I have someone who comes in with a set of classic hormonal symptoms and wants to do a trial of hormones, uh, then if they are not responding the way that I expect them to after a period of time, I might check an estrogen level simply to see, is any of this estrogen getting into their body? Mm -hmm. Yeah, are we having an issue with absorption or... It's also good to point out that no one anywhere has ever established that X hormone level equals symptom relief or happiness. Right. So if people are feeling better, we don't necessarily need to chase some quote unquote ideal lab value. And if you're not feeling well, we don't need to chase that either. We need to find the treatment that impacts the symptoms versus these like mythical ideals that are out there about lab work. Yes. And what is a reasonable expectation? So if folks are having symptoms, they decide on menopause hormonal therapy for symptom management. What should they expect? So what I always told them was um, what you can expect is a relief of hot flashes. It should be near complete within the second or third week. I mean, and if it's not, call me because I'll probably increase your dose a little bit because I would always start with a very low dose. You know, quick relief of hot flashes, fairly quickly thereafter, normalization or at least some help with sleep patterns. And to whatever extent mood and cognitive issues are based on hormones and our sleep, then should start to see relief with that within a month at most. The tissue effects from the vaginal topical preparations, those take a little while. You have to be patient at least a month uh, to start to see a change and then probably two months for the full effect. Yeah, that was a, I think that's a good review because there are some symptoms that hormone therapy is great for. There are other symptoms that are less likely to be impacted layering that hormone therapy piece on those lifestyle fundamentals. You can't only do the hormone therapy and not address the stress and the sleep management and the movement and, and the, the food and, and the, yeah, yeah, and the right. monitoring alcohol intake. But those are the foundation. And then the hormone therapy is like the icing on the cake. That kind of right. takes care of those symptoms that aren't responding as well, that potentially we need you know, more immediate relief for while we're getting at the underlying cause. But it's not, unfortunately, this magic bullet that's like, oh, you're going to lose weight. Your libido is going to be through the roof. You can get back to working 12 hour days and sleeping, you know, six hours at night and drinking, you know, two quad espresso. Like you have to also do kind of the boring stuff as well. Yes. Uh, but that allows the hormone therapy to work better and to be able to use sort of that lower dose for potentially a shorter amount of time, which leads me to my next question of how, how long? long? Yeah. <laughs> how long? How do you know when you're done? And what's what are we looking for as far as the duration of treatment? So purely from a risk standpoint, if you were taking, you know, one of these preparations that uh, increases the risk of breast cancer, or even if you weren't quite sure that the data we have really proves that the bioidentical versions are safer then you could purely from a risk standpoint for breast cancer, you could say, well, maybe try to keep it to under five years. So that would be a very reductive way to look at it. I would look at it more in the sense that 
you're probably going to need it for two or three years through the worst of the transition time, and that periodically you may want to try weaning off and just see how things are going. I get the question a lot, uh, does taking hormones just put off the inevitable? Does it just put off menopause till later? Not really, because most of the symptoms that we're talking about today, those are symptoms of perimenopause, and they're the symptoms of all the fluctuations in the hormones, the estrogen being all over the place, the progesterone maybe there, maybe not. Eventually, all of that settles down to the new, the new normal for the rest of life, which is going to be a chronically low estrogen level, no progesterone. Your ovaries are doing this in the background on their own schedule, which is known only to them. And so when you're taking these replacement hormones or this hormonal therapy, you are masking all that stuff in the background, but it is going to run its course. So periodically you try weaning down and weaning off and seeing how things are. And usually it takes a month or two to sort of get a feel for what's my reality at this moment. Then you can decide, do I want to go back on for a while? Do I not? I had uh, many patients in my practice who every time they tried to wean off had unacceptable symptoms come back. And usually not hot flashes and poor sleep, but things like, I can't find a happy thought by week two off my hormones. Or my brain fog comes back and I've still got a business to run, a family to raise, whatever it is. I had women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, who chose to stay on their hormones indefinitely because they just had a better quality of life. So that would be sort of a question with their provider about sort of that particular risk-benefit ratio. But for the majority of folks, what the hormone therapy is doing is providing a hormonal steady state, which kind of supersedes the kind of wild up and down that the ovaries are doing on their own. And then once the ovaries kind of simmer down into their new normal, which is going to be more stable levels, lower estrogen, lower progesterone, they might not need that balancing force that the hormone therapy is doing. And at that point, they might decide to just do a local application on occasion to keep the vaginal tissues healthy, but might not need that systemic support anymore. Yeah, that's a good point. Because uh, as we said in the earlier discussion about the sexual health and perimenopause, if there are those genitourinary changes with low estrogen, uh, those are not going to get better. And uh, if women need some amount of estrogen to address those symptoms, they may very well get along with just the topical forms, but that's going to be indefinitely. It's indefinite maintenance for as long as you want that benefit, you'll want to keep using those products. And then I'm seeing a trend of folks being prescribed birth control pills through the perimenopausal period, especially to manage heavy bleeding or cycle irregularity, but even also for things like hot flashes. How would you compare birth control pills to more bioidentical hormone replacement therapy? The reason birth control pills are being used is they are definitely more effective at controlling bleeding. Menopausal hormone therapy or hormonal support is not potent enough to shut down your own cycle. So ovulation will still happen when it happens. Periods will still happen when they happen. And they are not well controlled by that sort of supportive therapy. So if bleeding is a big issue, birth control pills may be one viable option. We do have a little concern about increased risk of blood clotting with birth control pills because they are always a synthetic estrogen, which is more potent and has a higher risk of blood clotting than the bioidentical, even oral forms of estrogen. So 40 is usually the arbitrary cutoff where we say, I really don't feel comfortable giving you birth control pills because there's an increased clot risk. And of course, if if a patient is a smoker, they probably shouldn't take them over 30. Another way to handle 
the, the often really aggravating bleeding abnormalities that can come with perimenopause with sudden you know, flooding and soaking through clothing and all this kind of thing, uh, is to insert one of the hormonal IUDs. This is one of the only times when I feel like a synthetic progestin is a lifesaver and is safe and effective to use. Uh, so the Mirena, Kylina, Lileta, Skyla IUDs, Mirena being kind of the first on the scene, <clears throat> they contain a very tiny amount of levonorgestrel, which is a synthetic progestin. And kind of like with the topical vaginal estrogens, this amount of levonorgestrel is absorbed pretty minimally. It does get into the system, but for the vast majority of women, it doesn't cause any systemic kinds of effects. You know, there are a few people who on birth control pills will notice mood changes or decreased libido or weight gain. But with these hormone-containing IUDs, that it's very rare that that happens. I've only seen it a couple of times in all these years. But what they do do is really effectively control the bleeding. So if someone comes in perimenopause, is having periods every one to eight weeks and soaking, you know, one pad an hour uh, to five pads in an afternoon, and they just never know what to expect, then I often would suggest one of the levonorgestrel IUDs. The Mirena is good for seven years. That's way more than you need to get you through the perimenopause. Uh, so that's just another option to consider. Yeah, heavy bleeding can be one of the trickiest things, especially keeping people from becoming iron deficient, mm-hmm. anemic, which again then will make the mood worse, the energy worse. So it's good to know the different options available. And I would say my clinical preference is to do more of that local IUD progestin preparation than to be having women, especially women over their 40s, taking the oral synthetic hormones and potentially having a bigger clotting risk. I agree. Uh, Anything else you want to make sure people know about when it comes to using hormones as a treatment option around perimenopause and menopause? I would say two things. One is um, beware of pellet implants because pellets can be used responsibly, but there are a number of clinics Um, around the country that use a kind of one-size-fits-all based on a blood-level testosterone pellet that delivers a very high dose, and women often feel really great on it, at least initially, Uh, but it's not a good long-term solution. And when I have seen these people and follow up in my office, their levels are well within the male range of testosterone, and over time, some of them develop um, unwanted hair growth, they can develop male pattern balding, they can develop acne. And their lab results, like their cholesterol levels, for example, get more into the male range in a, a more unfavorable range. Uh, I don't think I've had anyone develop polycythemia, which is too many red cells, which we see sometimes in treating transgender men with testosterone. But beware of pellets. It, it may not be a great solution. A lot of money is put into marketing them, uh, but the expectations uh, are not realistic. So with your experience working with transgender folk, how does perimenopause affect them? So I don't have any personal experience with a transgender client going through menopause. Yeah. But if you think it through, um, it's it's less likely to be an issue because transgender men are taking uh, high male appropriate doses of testosterone. And that, given that testosterone can be processed into estrogen in the body, that testosterone therapy is liable to pretty well suppress the perimenopausal symptoms as those ovaries are going through their their craziness. Um, and that's just, just an assumption. Like I said, I did not have any, any folks go through it. Whereas a transgender woman is going to be on testosterone suppressive therapy 
and on uh, steady doses of estrogen. Probably not progesterone, although some did uh, ask for and choose to take that as well. And therefore, they were already kind of doing the menopausal hormone therapy thing. They're already on a steady dose. So in both cases, transgender folk might have a little less bumpy time going through the menopause because of that gender-affirming therapy. And then the other piece we just really haven't talked about is compounding. For people, for example, who don't tolerate ingredients in their commercially made hormones, let's say a vaginal hormone cream that has bioidentical estradiol, but it also has polyethylene glycol in it, and someone reacts to that. A compounding pharmacy is a pharmacy that custom makes things to a prescription that's called in by a doc who's experienced you know, with compounding. And so the compounding pharmacy could make up a cream that, that doesn't have any of those additives, but has a similar dose of estrogen in it. And the other big thing I guess we didn't talk about, and what I mostly use compounding pharmacies for, is testosterone. So we haven't really even touched on that, and maybe we should just do it briefly, if that's okay. Yeah. So what role do you think testosterone has in menopausal hormone therapy? A variable and personal. Um, so what happens with testosterone in both men and women is it's highest when we're young. It slowly drifts down with each decade. And that's not really impacted with menopause. It's just that continually slowly decreasing level. And it, it's one of the few levels that's worth measuring sometimes because it doesn't fluctuate really. It's pretty steady. I don't replace testosterone right out of the box. I wait and see what effect estrogen and progesterone have on symptoms. But there is a subset of women I have found, perhaps one in four, who have specific complaints that you could tie to low testosterone and who then, if they take a, a low female appropriate dose of testosterone, will feel better. And those symptoms would be, I hesitate to say it, but I have to say it anyway, Low libido. Yep. We already it talked about how complicated sometimes, that was. Sometimes it is sometimes related it's... to hormone, especially I think in women who have true lab normals. Like you said, yeah. testosterone is a hormone that I feel comfortable testing in the blood in perimenopausal folks because yeah. it tends to stay pretty stable. And in people who are under the lab range, yes. I specifically see them be the people that will have a more consistent response to that form of therapy. Right. Yeah. So if testosterone is extremely low or if they cannot build muscle, no matter how hard they try with their workouts mm -hmm. and their testosterone is low to low normal, that can be helpful. And building muscle is really important to try and maintain a healthy body weight, even if it's not exactly what it was when we were in our 20s. Uh, and then the third thing is there's a sometimes an aspect of resistant depression, I would say. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, we talked about losing our mojo, but some women, the estrogen goes a long way toward helping the mood changes they've been noticing, but they don't really feel like themselves again until they get that last little piece, which is a bit of testosterone. And I think that just probably depends on people who maybe ran kind of high levels when they were young, and that makes them feel like themselves. Three out of four women I prescribed testosterone for, I would say, came back and we verified a good level and they said, yeah, you know what? I really don't feel any different. And so then we just stopped it. Yeah. But compounding is one of the few ways to give it because there are no FDA-approved preparations of testosterone in appropriate doses for women. Right. So you, you kind of have to compound or you have to take something like androgel, uh, a little packet of gel for men that's 10 times the dose, and you have to take one packet and try to use a tiny syringe a to teeny. draw it all out yeah. and then squirt a tiny bit onto your wrist and rub it in. And that's just annoying and hard to do properly. Yeah. So to clarify, there are pre-made pharmaceutical doses of hormones, which you could get from any general pharmacy. And the pros of those is they're widely available and oftentimes have a higher level of insurance coverage, although not always. Yeah. 
the downside is it's one size fit all. There is this much in the patch. There is this much that you can take orally. If you compare that to compounding pharmacies, those are pharmacies that make personalized levels. So you can do oral, under the tongue, topical, vaginal preparations, and you can fine tune the doses specifically to what works best for that person. And you also have a little bit more uh, impact over additives that folks might not want in their body. Very well summarized. It was so great talking to you today. This is information that I think is so crucial. And I, one of my big focuses with this is I think that the more education and more information people have, the less mysterious this process is and the more options they have as far as like putting together the approach that works best for them. And I think for some people having the ability to access hormone replacement therapy in a way where they can feel comfortable with sort of the safety and also having re reasonable expectations is a really important part of the process. So thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I, it was always one of my favorite things to do to give people um, options and hope and some degree of control at a very out of control feeling time in their lives. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Change, a podcast about perimenopause for folks in their 30s and 40s. I'm Dr. Caitlin O'Connor, and our executive producer and audio engineer is Janice Matsko of Empowerment Ventures, theme song created by Lady Gang Music from Denver, Colorado. You can check out show notes and find and share episodes at drcaitlin.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can sign up for my newsletter. This podcast is a labor of love, and if you like it, please tell your friends and subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen. Now for the legally appropriate disclaimers. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. This does not constitute the practice of medicine, and this podcast does not give medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship has been formed. Listeners should not delay or disregard medical advice for any condition they have, and if you aren't getting good care, advocate for yourself, explore your options, and try the best you can. Until next time, I love you, and you're doing a great job. Oh, thanks. Yes, I've been told it's very calming, <laughs> which is not good when you're giving lectures. It can put people asleep. <laughs> Maybe raising five boys had something to do with yeah, it. It was like, okay, everybody just settled down. Calmer, right. Calmer. They were like, what?